Welcome to the newest Patreon episode. Hi patrons, thank you so much for your support. It's wonderful and you all should be getting something from me in the mail sometime in the next few days and I hope you like it. In this Patreon episode, I'm going to be telling you the story of one of the absolutely most heartless women I've had the displeasure of reading about in all of my true crime years. This episode takes place down in Alabama and Georgia. And I've driven through the South a couple of times and I absolutely love Georgia. Such a beautiful state, but so humid. But if you're ever in Georgia, you definitely have to go to Savannah, one of the coolest towns I've ever visited. I actually lived in the South a couple different times, different parts of the South, Texas and North Carolina. The South is so much different than Alaska. It's like another planet almost. But I really love it down there, and if it wasn't so damn humid, I'd probably spend a lot more time down there. But enough rambling, let's get into tonight's episode, and I hope you like it. Many of us have exes we would rather have never met, whether they be ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or ex-spouse. And sometimes these people have the ability and the desire to make our lives miserable long past the end of the relationship. Today's episode is a story of a woman who took the concept of crazy ex to a whole new level and who will probably make your worst ex look like Mother Teresa by the time it's over. This is a story of a vengeful bitch who would do anything to make sure that her ex-husband never got to live happily ever after. This is a story of Jessica McCord the evilest ex-wife in Alabama. Our story starts in the late 80s in a small suburb of Birmingham, Alabama. Alan Bates was a hardworking and friendly high school student, and he was just getting ready to start his senior year. It was the summer of 1989, and Alan had led a charmed life until then. He was one of those people that was friends with everybody, and he was talented in a wide variety of hobbies. He was class president, but he was also very interested in theater and was a musician. He was essentially a jack of all trades and also happened to be pretty cute. And a lot of girls were really interested in dating him. But dating in high school wasn't his big priority. He was very focused and one day he hoped to end up working on Broadway. He didn't want to be an actor. He actually loved working behind the scenes and he hoped to do that as a job for the rest of his life. However, in the summer of 1989, he would meet a girl that would completely turn his life upside down. And she was probably the least expected girlfriend he could have chosen, according to his family and friends. While he was even killed and very focused, Jessica McCord was dramatic and desperate for attention. By the time she met Alan, she'd already had several abortions, and she was known to be wild, predictable, unpredictable, and just a fun person, other than the crazy mood swings. She had also done a lot of partying in high school, including quite a wide variety of hard drugs. They had also grown up in very different families. 
His parents were still together and had experienced a happy childhood with a very close-knit family. Jessica was from a dysfunctional family full of violence. Her biological father was a violent man who would later go to prison for murdering his second wife. Jessica would really end up taking after him in a lot of ways. Somehow, however, when Alan and Jessica met, there was just an instant spark, even though they really didn't have anything in common. And while many of his friends and family members saw red flags with her right away, it would take him much too long to finally see the light. Shortly after they started dating, Jessica began to exhibit signs of a controlling nature. She told him he could no longer hang out with a lifelong friend who happened to be female, and she was extremely jealous of his friendship with this girl, who was like a sister to him. And while he would never quite cut off contact with his friend, their friendship would definitely suffer from Jessica's intrusion and would never really be the way it had been before. Alan was the kind of guy who had college plans and big dreams for his future. He just wasn't looking to get serious with a girl in his senior year. However, that would rapidly change as Jessica found out just a few weeks after they got together that she was pregnant. She decided to keep this baby, and while years later she would tell others that it wasn't even Alan's child, at the time he fully believed that it was, and he was determined to do what he thought was right and decided to marry her. He knew it would change his life drastically, but he was an optimist and he really thought everything would end up working out well anyways. Alan's family was just not able to muster up the same kind of optimism that he had. They began spending a lot of time with Jessica and began to see aspects of her that were alarming at the least. While she was quite intelligent actually and had taken many advanced high school classes, there was just something off about her. For one thing, she was the kind of person who always had to have her way, no matter what. She didn't understand or practice the art of compromise. That is not somebody that you want your child to get into a relationship with. Jessica would soon move in with the Bates and she and Alan were married at the age of 17. Their daughter was born in 1990 and at first, it seemed like things might work out. However, Jessica's inner demons would occasionally show themselves in various ways. There were emotional outbursts in which she displayed intense anger and fury over the minorest of infractions. And she often told long stories about the many tragedies that had befallen her in her short life. Many of her stories would end up contradicting each other, and Alan's family suspected she was either exaggerating or outright lying. She was also the kind of person who would invent medical problems for sympathy. She was constantly telling his family about all these various illnesses she had, and they were never really sure whether to believe her or not because she didn't seem to be affected by any of them. Just a few months after their daughter was born, it was Alan's fall semester at college. He was determined to make it work, doing whatever he could to support for his family 
and do well in his classes. He was registered for college at a school around 30 minutes from Birmingham. And his family really wanted to give him and his new family the best start that they could. So they bought them a small fixer-upper house near his new college. The first few years of their marriage were rocky but manageable. Alan was so busy taking classes and working that he often didn't even see Jessica very much. And she just stayed home with the baby all day. Despite her constant belief that he was cheating on her with college girls, they were keeping it together. And they had a second daughter in 1992. After their second daughter was born, things seemed to get bad pretty quickly. Jessica was just sort of letting herself go. She lounged around the house in pajamas all day and spent most of her free time sleeping. And she always claimed that she was sick. This was while Alan was working a couple of jobs and going to school full time to support the family financially and to try to make the marriage better. While his marriage was slowly imploding, Alan was also diving into a beloved hobby that he wanted to do as a living later. He was working as a behind the scenes guy at the college theater and making all sorts of awesome friends in the process. The theater would end up being his safe harbor away from his terrible marriage. And he would end up spending a large portion of his nights at the theater instead of actually coming home. Jessica was not only not contributing much to the relationship, but she had begun to actively try to ruin Alan's reputation. She told people that he was an abusive husband and terrible father. This probably stemmed from some jealousy over the fact that he had a pretty active life while she was sitting home with two small children and wallowing in depression. Jessica decided after a few years of this that she also wanted to go back to school, so she signed up for one class at the same college and quickly thereafter had a male friend she was spending time with. She seemed like she was trying to make Alan jealous, but it had the opposite effect. He was actually happy for her that she had made a friend. Soon after, she told Alan that she wanted to take a trip to Washington, D.C., to do research for a school paper, and she was going alone. They saw it as a break from each other and a chance to have alone time. While she was there, Alan somehow found out that she had gone with her guy friend. This would be a breaking point for Alan, who had never and would never cheat on his wife. Her betrayal was a straw that broke the camel's back. It would also be revealed much later that Jessica actually had different motives in going to DC other than cheating. She had actually gone there to get an abortion. Alan got his kids out of the house that night and started packing up his stuff. Jessica came home while he was getting ready to leave and flew into an extreme fit of anger. She actually tried to attack him with a knife. He got out of there as soon as possible. And when he later went back for the rest of his belongings, he saw that she had destroyed most of them in a pure rage. 
The fact that he had dared to leave her would drive her insane, and she would soon start a campaign to make Alan's life as miserable as possible. And she had absolutely no problem using her kids to accomplish this goal. Alan was such a good guy that he actually just let her keep the house and began giving her money to take care of the kids right away. Jessica was so incapable of running a household on her own that she actually left the free house and she and her kids moved in with her mom and stepdad. She would soon prove herself to be beyond malicious. She would take any nice thing that Alan did and turn it against him somehow. She was the perpetual victim and Alan was ruining her life. They officially divorced in 1995 and Alan readily gave her full custody. He was busy and he thought that the kids should have a mom that was around all the time. She immediately began hiding the kids from him and disappearing when it was his visitation time. She would spend countless hours trying to convince her young daughters that their dad had left them because he just didn't love them anymore. Her mom and stepdad actually joined in on this. And when Jessica began dating around, she would just dump her kids with her mom for a few months and disappear off with some guy. She didn't want Alan to see his daughters, but she really couldn't be bothered to take care of them herself. However, other than these issues with his ex, Alan's life had taken a turn for the better after leaving her. He graduated and soon started working at a historic theater in Birmingham. Not too long after he started working there, he would meet a young art historian who would turn out to be his soulmate. Her name was Tara Clue. She was a career-minded young woman who was part of a restoration group that was going around and surveying historic buildings all across the United States. She was actually from DC, but after dating Alan for a pretty short time while in Alabama, she decided that she would leave her job and stay there with him. She knew about his contentious visitation issues, but was willing to be there with him through thick and thin. Things between them were just right from day one. She was sweet and kind and everything Jessica was not. She made Alan extremely happy and soon the two were head over heels in love. This of course would only cause Jessica to go even more insane with jealousy. She simply could not allow Alan to have a happy life after leaving her. She knew that she now had to find a relationship. There was no way she would be alone and single while her ex was in a happy relationship. She knew that once they would go to court over custody, it would look so much better if she had a relationship that seemed stable instead of just being single and living with her mom. She found a guy named Brad and quickly moved in with him. They were together for a few months before he even knew that she had children. Jessica got pregnant a couple more times and the first time she decided to abort the baby, but the second time she decided to keep the baby. Brad was in no way interested in having a kid with her. And he had told her this up front. He dumped her after she got pregnant, but she really didn't mind. She had something else in mind. She immediately took him to court for child support. And soon her third daughter was born in 1997. She was now making enough in child support from her two baby daddies 
that she basically had the income of a full-time job. Around this time, Jessica got super mad at Alan during a visitation and pushed him down the stairs. He ended up with a broken arm and she ended up getting charged with assault. But she was still able to maintain total custody of her daughters for far too long. Brad found out about this and was actually pretty scared of her. So he didn't really pursue a relationship with his daughter. By 1999, Alan decided he was finally sick of dealing with Jessica's bullshit, and it was time to take this matter to court. While waiting for the first court date, Alan and Tara had decided to get married in summer of 1999. The kids were going to be a part of the wedding, but a few days before the wedding, Jessica again disappeared with the kids. Alan and Tara decided to postpone the wedding because they really didn't want to get married without his kids involved. Jessica was kicking her sabotage into high gear. The fall court date was postponed and kept getting postponed. And Jessica just kept evading visitations with lies and excuses. The court date was set for spring 2000. When it came around, Jessica didn't even bother to show up, but her lawyer did and quickly announced she was stepping down. Jessica would end up going through almost 10 lawyers during this custody battle. The judge agreed that Jessica wasn't abiding by the divorce agreement and decided to hold her in contempt of court. She had six months to prove that she could stick with the visitation schedule or she would have to spend 10 days in jail. The judge also agreed that Alan and Tara should have the girls for eight weeks in the summer. The couple had recently relocated to Maryland for work and were secretly planning to get married that summer right after they got the girls. When Alan went to Jessica to pick up the girls, he was surprised to be introduced to her husband of one week, Jeff McCord, who happened to be a cop. He was an easily manipulated lunkhead who hadn't dated Jessica for very long, but had married her a week prior. Jessica had had a couple more abortions while dating him, but would end up giving birth to her first baby with him in September 2001. Alan and Tara were finally able to wed in June 2000 with his daughters there. They had the kids for eight weeks of happiness in Maryland that summer. Jessica couldn't do much to ruin this time. She was too far away. After the summer with his daughters ended, Jessica began evading him almost right away. She and her new husband had moved and not, not provided an address or phone number. The six months were up in, in October and the judge saw that Jessica had yet again defied the court's orders and she was sentenced to spend 10 days in jail. Of course, they had to find her first. It would be well over a year before she was found. Ellen was not able to see or talk to his children for over a year because Je Jessica and Jeff were hiding out in their new house. Finally, in December 2001, cops found out where Jessica was living and showed up at her door. She had the gall to lie and say that she was her own sister and was now having an affair with Jessica's husband. She kept insisting this was true until finally the cops demanded her fingerprints. She finally gave in and admitted who she was and was taken to jail. Of course, she would never blame this on herself, not doing something right. She blamed it on Alan. She told people that Alan had forced her to go to jail. 
And she also blamed her own husband because somehow, she wasn't sure how, he was responsible. And despite the fact that Alan was actually fine with her leaving jail for a pass for Christmas, she still swore to everyone around her that he would pay for sending her to jail. When her jail sentence was up, Jessica was able to get her kids back right away. They had been temporarily staying with Alan and Tara, but she got full custody back, despite all of the lies and the evasion, and the fact that she'd actually taken them out of school for a year to hide them, and she'd admitted to lying about homeschooling them. She still got them back. Alan finally decided he was gonna sue for full custody. Jessica had another new lawyer after going through several over the years, and depositions in the matter were scheduled for February 15th, 2002. Jessica was getting pretty certain she was going to lose custody, and when she lost that, she would also lose the large amount of money that Alan had been paying her monthly. There was no way she could let that happen. Alan and Tara were so excited about February 15th. They thought it was the start of a whole new life together. It was a Friday, and they were planning to fly into Birmingham to give depositions, then go pick up the kids and take them to spend the weekend with the whole Bates family. His parents had moved to Marietta, Georgia, and it was just a couple hour drive out of Birmingham. Jessica and Jeff had made their own plan for the weekend. The deposition that Alan was coming to give was a pre-trial one. The new custody trial was set to start in March. Alan and Tara and the rest of the Bates were feeling pretty good that week. They felt confident that Alan was going to finally get custody and the whole family wanted to catch up on all the time that they had missed with his daughters. His parents were incredibly worried about how the girls were being raised by their mother, especially when she show, so often shoved them off on other family members to run off with some guy. The Bates wanted to give the girls the stability they had yet to experience in their young lives. The Bates family was also so excited that Jessica had easily agreed to let Alan take the kids that weekend. The older couple on that Friday night was happily awaiting the young family's arrival at their house. They expected them to show up by evening. However, the evening passed and there was no sign of them. By midnight, Joan and Philip Bates were getting extremely panicked. Alan was incredibly reliable and he would always call when he was on his way or if there was a problem. The deposition wouldn't have gone past five or so, and even adding in extra time for picking up the kids and getting dinner, plus going home traffic, they should definitely have gotten to Marietta by 10 at the very latest, unless something had happened. Alan's parents were trying very hard to be optimistic, but Joan's mother's instinct told her that something was very wrong. Alan would definitely have called by now if he was able to. They desperately began making phone calls to anyone they thought might have information. They couldn't get a hold of Tara or Alan, and they also tried Jessica's house and attempted to reach her husband at the police department, but he was off duty that night. 
They were not only worried about Alan and Tara, but they had no idea where their grandkids were. They were concerned that the four may have gotten into a traffic accident on the way. Soon, they would wish this had been the case. Joan and Philip got a hold of the Birmingham Police Department and urged them to go check at Jessica's house, hoping against hope that Alan and Tara were still there for some reason. A cop went by the residence, but it looked completely deserted, and all of the windows in the house and garage were completely covered. The cop wasn't even able to catch a glimpse inside the house at all. Early on Saturday morning, a terrible discovery would be made. On a rural road in Rutledge, Georgia, a tiny town around 200 miles from Birmingham, a group of travelers was driving down the road and came upon a huge fire. As they got closer, they realized it was a vehicle that was completely engulfed in flames. It was in a woodsy rural area, and the flames were so intense that they had started to spread to nearby trees. It was essentially pure luck that these people had happened upon the car, especially before it had started a more devastating fire. It was a very isolated area, a good place to hide evidence. By the time the fire department got there, the car was a charred heap, barely recognizable as a vehicle at all. They couldn't even tell what the color, make, or model of it might be. One thing was for certain though, someone, someone had wanted this thing completely destroyed. The air was very strong with the smell of some sort of accelerant that had been used. It was so burned, in fact, they couldn't even really tell if there was any people inside. However, one clue was left. The license plate had fallen to the ground and was still legible. Once the sheriff arrived, he quickly realized this was much more than vandalism. They were able to get inside the trunk where they found a burned up lump, which almost looked like a large animal at first glance. But when they looked closer, they realized it was actually the bodies of two humans entangled together in the trunk. This was definitely looking like a double homicide, so the Georgia Bureau of Investigation quickly got involved. They were able to ascertain that the car was an Avis rental from the Birmingham airport, which had been rented to Alan Bates. The car was flagged in the system, and within just a few hours, Alan's dad, Philip, would begin calling rental car offices trying to find out where Alan had rented and what vehicle he was in. He was doing this prior to calling the police to file a missing persons report. The moment when the Bates world started to collapse was when Philip got a hold of Avis and was told by the employee that he was supposed to call the GBI. Philip's heart sank. Something was terribly wrong. He was still hoping that maybe it was a car crash. Maybe they were injured in, in the hospital. He was hoping against hope, but the engineer in him was a logician, and he knew that the GBI probably would not have gotten involved in a simple car crash. When the GBI began to analyze the scene of the fire, they were thankful to discover that some evidence had been left behind. They were able to see that the two bodies were a male and a female and the fact that their bodies were shoved into the trunk in an extremely unnatural position, it seemed that, thankfully, they had probably been dead before the fire had been started. And based on the lack of any evidence in the area, the murder had probably occurred elsewhere and then was dumped here.
they were also able to find some important evidence, including a 44 shell casing, a spent bullet, a cigarette butt, and the victim's wedding rings. They were also wrapped up in a comforter that was not destroyed, so they knew they would be able to get evidence from that. Several GBI agents got involved and headed off in different directions. A few were going to the Bates house, and a few others had gone off to talk to Jeff McCord. This was, of course, after the Bates told them that Alan and Tara's last known destination was the McCord's residence. GBI knew that he was a cop and hoped that this was a good thing. At the Bates' home, the whole extended family had gathered together. They had planned to all be together that weekend anyways. They were going to be celebrating Alan's birthday a little late. But now they were gathered together for a much worse reason. Soon, during that morning, Jessica finally returned the many calls that the Bates had made to her. She and Jeff had just gotten home after an all-night couples outing, she explained, and she asked for Alan. Joan was extremely distraught, and she greatly distrusted Jessica. Jessica tried to explain that Alan and Tara had never shown up, and in fact, she was also wondering where he was. The Bates were finally able to breathe a small sigh of relief, at least, when Jessica explained that her children had gone to her parents' house that night. Whatever had happened to Alan and Tara, the kids were safe. Jessica and Jeff would claim that they had been out all night, celebrating Valentine's Day late. They said they had gone to a couple of movies, drove around, and gone to a strip club. They had also ended up going to Home Depot right when it opened first thing in the morning. They said they were getting supplies for a current house renovation, but had actually only purchased one very suspicious item. Slowly, over the course of Saturday, the Bates family was beginning to learn about what had happened in bits and pieces. First, they were told that the rental car had been found. And finally, after a while, a detective revealed that there were two bodies in the trunk, and they needed dental records to help determine if they were the bodies of Alan and Tara. The Bates family also explained about the child custody case, the depositions, and the issues that they'd been dealing with from Jessica for years. The McCords were definitely starting to look suspicious, and once Jeff McCord was interviewed for the first time that day, suspicions would only deepen. Jeff was acting strange from the very beginning of the questioning. They had only told him that they were investigating the disappearance of the Bates, and he was extremely stingy with giving much more than one or two word answers. He did, however, explain that Alan and Tara had never shown up the night before to get the kids, and that they had ended up bringing them to Jessica's mother's house around 6.45. They had then gone out all night to celebrate Valentine's Day. He said they went to a few movies and then ended up at a strip club. He even happened to have the movie tickets in his pocket, and he showed them to the cops, but he wouldn't let them actually keep them, just make copies. At the same time, other detectives were heading out to find Jessica. They stopped at her house and then found her at her mother's house, which was nearby. On the way there, one detective got a message that a large white van had just left McCord's house, 
so he quickly caught up with it and decided to follow it. The van led them on an aimless drive, and they eventually pulled it over. It was being driven by Jessica's stepdad, Albert, and in the back they could see a couch that had no cushions and had almost all of the fabric cut off from it. He would later get rid of it near a dumpster and explain to the detectives that he did it because he was told to by Jessica. Unfortunately, they were unable to find any evidence on the couch. The officers that went to Jessica's mom's house were greeted with her mom, Diane, and Jessica, both acting extremely defensive and rude upon their arrival. They wouldn't invite them inside, but in fact allowed the children to come outside and listen to them questioning them about the disappearance of Alan and Tara. Jessica's story of the previous day's events were very similar to Jeff's, with a few huge differences. First, she said that they had taken the kids to her mom's house at 5.30, not 6.45 like Jeff had said. And she added that they had stopped back by there late at night, but the kids were already asleep, so they left. Jeff had not mentioned that part at all. Jessica also angrily refused their request to search her house, despite stating that Alan had never been in there. She would not budge at all. But then, when the detectives revealed that they had found Alan's rental car with bodies inside, she suddenly displayed an extremely overdramatic emotional reaction, complete with falling to the ground and rolling around, flailing and crying. On Sunday, the autopsies were performed on the two bodies. They had now been confirmed to be Alan and Tara once the dental records had been retrieved. And they now had to figure out how they had died. Their bodies had been so severely burned that it was extremely hard by looking at them to tell what kind of other injuries there might have. During the autopsy, it was discovered that they had both been shot multiple times in various parts of their bodies. Later that day, detectives finally got their search warrant for the McCord's house. Detectives were soon able to speak with the children who had been thankfully gone from the McCord's house from Friday morning until Saturday. They found out that their daycare person had actually brought the kids to Jessica's mom's house, which completely contradicted both Jessica and Jeff's stories. It had also been hours earlier than either of them had claimed. It was clear that the kids had never been at the McCord house, and so the McCord's claim that they were expecting Alan to pick the kids up there was an obvious fabrication. The kids also revealed that their family room had been changed overnight while they were gone. The carpet and couch were gone, and things had been moved around. During the initial brief search at the McCords, detectives could see it was going to be an incredibly hard house to search. It really looked like hoarders lived there, and it also looked like the place hadn't been cleaned in years. There was trash and junk everywhere, and they didn't even know where to start. The first search yielded nothing, but once another detective had spoken to the children who gave the tip about the den being rearranged, they were able to get a second search warrant so they could go back in there and just tear that den apart. It wasn't long before they found a bullet hole 
which had come through the den wall and ended up on the floor of the room in the next room. The hole inside the den had been wallpapered over, but the backside of the wall had not, and the hole wasn't even plastered, and as soon as you know where to look, it was extremely obvious. Also, they hadn't completely gotten rid of the original wallpaper, which was found in the trash with the matching bullet hole. Once they really got looking in the den, they also found a couple of extremely small drops of blood, which would later be found to be Tara's. However, they knew that wherever the carpet was, it probably had a lot more evidence. They just had to find it. The detectives were itching to arrest Jessica, but they really wanted to do an incredibly in-depth search and investigation so they could make sure that the murder charge would stick. After the second search was complete, Jeff volunteered to speak again with the detectives. He didn't seem to understand the seriousness of the situation. He was making jokes and seemed completely relaxed. His answer for almost every question was, I don't know, ask Jessica, and explained that it was Jessica who had gotten rid of the couch fabric, and he didn't know where they had gone. Needless to say, he didn't provide any helpful information. While at the station that day being questioned, Jeff was told to turn in his gun and his badge. He was being placed on administrative leave immediately. However, the next morning, he would be fired. Ballistics results came back soon and revealed that the bullet at the crime scene and the bullet found on the floor of the McCord's house had been fired from the same barrel. However, during the search, they had not been able to find the barrel and the gun that had fired those bullets. The murder weapon was still missing. Meanwhile, the Bates still had not seen their grandchildren. Jessica and Jeff had actually driven them off to Florida to stay with Jessica's sister. The Bates kept calling and calling, but the sister never responded and never answered the phone. For whatever reason, Jessica's sister decided to be the one to break the news of their dad's death to them, even though the detectives had asked her not to. The McCords were soon announced as suspects, but they were not yet arrested. They began hiding out at various friends' houses, trying to evade the media. However, once the ballistics results came back and were verified, they were now ready to arrest the McCords. Jessica and Jeff began trying to find a high-priced attorney but they really didn't have any money. And Jessica actually called her one good friend and asked her if she would use her house as collateral to pay lawyer's fees. The friend refused. At this point, she was starting to believe that Jessica was guilty. In fact, a week prior, Jessica had told her friend that she was going to try to make Alan so mad that he would hit her and wouldn't win custody. The friend really wasn't concerned about the plan because she knew that Alan would never hit a woman, and she really wasn't sure if Jessica was being serious about that. 
But now that Alan and Tara had been murdered one week later, she had a sinking feeling that Jessica's plan had taken a darker turn. While the friend had been led to believe that Alan had become a deadbeat dad, she had known him well in high school when the two first got together, and she knew that he just wasn't a violent person. The McCords were finally tracked down at a friend's house in another part of Alabama and arrested. Jessica immediately insisted she was pregnant, trying to get better treatment, but to no avail. They were both charged with capital murder. Alabama really loves the death penalty, and that's just not a great state to murder somebody in. Now that the couple had been split up and taken off into separate interrogation rooms, there was hope amongst the detectives that one of them might turn on the other. However, Jessica was continuously defiant, and she refused to accept the gravity of the situation. She just kept insisting it was all a misunderstanding, and they would figure it out soon enough, and then she would just go home. Jeff would very soon prove to be the weak link, and would later reveal all sorts of information regarding the days and the weeks leading up to the murders. He said that Jessica had been working on him for several months, trying to convince him that Alan needed to die. She was obsessed with the idea of getting rid of him somehow. Although doing so would obviously cause her to lose that sweet child support money, it seemed like she was now just craving the control. She wanted control over her own children, and she refused to let anyone tell her otherwise. She also had intensified her efforts to make Alan seem like a monster and terrible father. She claimed to Jeff that Alan had beaten her up multiple times and also said she had to be hospitalized. She explained that she had gone to the local police, but they hadn't believed her and wouldn't do anything to help her. Jessica had become so enraged once it was clear that Alan was going to pursue full custody and she was beginning to worry that she might lose. And she explained to Jeff that Alan was negligent and she would never see her kids again if he got full custody. She explained that he had rarely shown up for scheduled visitations over the years and just did her very best to paint him as a deadbeat. In actuality, Alan had been a very organized person and he had kept meticulous notes on visitations throughout the long visitation custody argument and he'd kept records of every interaction with Jessica in which she either hid the kids or wouldn't allow him to see them or speak with them. Ironically enough, he kept all of these documents in a box labeled evidence. For most of the time leading up to the depositions, while Jessica kept egging him on that Alan needed to go, Jeff claimed he didn't really believe that she was being serious. He thought she was just venting. Over time, however, he began to believe her. And as the deposition got closer, her plans became more detailed. And the couple eventually spent Valentine's Day trying to come up with the perfect murder plan. They first decided to make it look like a carjacking gone bad. 
They would kill Alan and dump him and his car on the road in Georgia to make it look like something bad had happened on his way to Marietta. They really hadn't factored Tara into the situation because they weren't sure if she would be there. Although they did discuss that if she showed up, she too would have to be dealt with. The day of the deposition came, and when Jessica saw that Tara was there, she knew she'd have to be killed. She gave her husband a quick phone call and let him know. Neither of them had any reservations about this, and neither of them even gave a hint of backing off the plan. During a break that day of the depositions, Jessica began chatting with a random court employee and she began laughing about how Alan was trying to get custody of their oldest daughter, even though he wasn't even the real father. This was something that she had never told Alan or anyone, but for some reason decided to tell a complete stranger. After the deposition was over, Jessica would laughingly reveal to her latest lawyer that while being questioned about hiding the children from Alan, she had lied and had, in fact, hid them in Florida. Her lawyer couldn't believe it. She had just admitted to contempt of court. He was sickened by her. Ironically, her own lawyer would later end up being a prosecution witness in her death penalty trial. That evening of the deposition, the McCord's plan was to lure Alan and Tara inside to get the children, and then just shoot them. It wasn't a very well-thought-out plan. After the deposition, they hurried home to get the house ready. Giddy asked school children to get their plan going. Alan and Tara showed up right at 6 p.m., and they were greeted at the driveway by Jessica. For once, she was acting like a decent person and making pleasant small talk with them. She told them to come inside because the girls wanted to put on a play for them. This was strange because they'd never been invited inside the house, but they all went inside, and Alan and Tara sat on the couch in the family room. Jeff was in the room, sitting on a chair in the corner, not speaking at all, while Jessica continued to make small talk. After a few minutes, Jeff abruptly got up and pulled his gun out. First, he shot Tara in the head, and she fell to the floor and died instantly. Alan quickly tried to rush at Jeff, but he was shot multiple times. Once they were both on the ground, Jeff would put a couple of more bullets in each of them to make sure that they were dead. Once he was certain, they quickly began cleaning up. Jeff knew he had fired six shots and so looked around until he found the shell casings for them. Unfortunately for him, he had actually fired eight and somehow lost count. Neither of them noticed this at the time. While they were scrambling to clean up, they attempted to make their alibi better by calling Alan's phone and leaving an angry message that he hadn't shown up yet to get the kids. They also made calls between Alan and Tara's phones to each other, which makes no sense because they were supposed to be traveling in the same vehicle. Neither of them was bothered by what they had done. 
On the way to dropping off the car with two bodies in the trunk, they actually stopped off for fast food. They threw the murder weapon out the window somewhere along the highway, and it was never found. Once they got to the final destination for the car, which was randomly chosen, they doused the bodies in gasoline and set the whole thing on fire. On the way back home, they were both giddy, glad to have Alan out of their lives forever. Jessica thanked him profusely, saying he had done something good for her and her children. Once back in town, they went straight to Home Depot, where they claimed they were buying supplies for the home renovation, but only purchased a razor blade, presumably to cut up the couch and carpet. At the house, Jessica considered that they should just burn the whole place to the ground. There was blood everywhere, and they needed to get rid of it. The carpet was completely destroyed. She just wanted to burn it to the ground. That's not suspicious at all. However, Jeff argued against this, somehow being the rational one in this situation, and they removed the carpet entirely and took it to the dump. The next day, Jessica's one friend from high school would see the announcement of the murders on the news. She instantly knew Jessica had done it. She immediately contacted the detectives and she would end up being a very important prosecution witness. Once the McCords had finally been arrested and were in jail awaiting trial, Jessica could not believe the treatment she was receiving. She spent most of her days leading up to the trial, writing angry letters to the judge and various other people. She claimed her lawyers were unethical. She thought that she should get to post bail and leave because she was actually pregnant. No one cared. While awaiting trial, the detectives were also considering whether to charge Jessica's stepfather with assisting in the cover-up since he had dumped the couch. However, before they could make that decision, he would die of a heart attack. Jessica gave birth for the fifth time in fall 2002, and the baby was immediately taken from her and went to live with her relatives. The prosecution soon decided to try the couple separately. They hoped Jeff might break down and testify against Jessica. When Jessica found out that her trial had been transferred to a different judge, she now contacted that judge and sent her multi-page complaint letters, blaming her current situation on everyone but herself. She even personally attacked the judge and then immediately asked for bond. Nope. She also wrote angry letters to her own lawyer, accusing him of all sorts of things, including being unethical, but he just ignored it. She was completely unable to comprehend her situation. She seemed to think that a letter-writing campaign would somehow convince everyone that this was a mistake. Jessica's trial finally began on February 11th, 2003. It was just a few days from being exactly a year to the day since the murder. During her trial, it was revealed that during her first time in jail for the contempt charge, 
she had read a fiction book about dirty, murderous cops. And around that same time, had told another inmate how much better her life would be if her ex would just die. Jessica's defense team had their backs up against a wall. They had very few options for strategies. They did have the argument that the entire case was circumstantial, except for that small problem of the drops of Tara's blood in the McCord's house, where she supposedly had never been. Due to Jessica's complete lack of filter, there were so many witnesses for the prosecution who could testify about various statements she had made about Alan over the previous year. Her one friend dished out a lot of info on her, including the story of how she wanted to set Alan up to get arrested and how she later said that if Alan were to ever actually touch her, Jeff would immediately kill him. Jessica's lawyer also had the strategy of trying to make Alan seem like a bad guy, which really never goes over well in a courtroom when you're talking crap about a dead person. He blatantly stated that Alan had been an abusive husband, unknowingly lying under oath because he had the bad sense to take his client at her word. Jessica's last child custody lawyer also testified against her and how she had intentionally misled him, causing him to lie to the court during the custody trial, and how she had bragged about lying in her deposition. It was clear he was disgusted by the fact that Jessica had laughed about hiding Alan's children from him. The ballistics evidence would be one of the more persuasive parts of the trial. Sometimes in trials, forensic experts can tend to get too technical and bore the jury. Not in this case. The ballistics expert was short and to the point and explained how they matched the bullets in a very cogent manner. On Valentine's Day, Jessica took the stand in her own defense. It was an interesting coincidence that exactly one year prior, she had been planning the murder she was now on trial for. When Jessica was on the stand, she didn't seem contrite in any way or even sad that these deaths had happened. She had a certain aura that gave off the impression that she always expected to get her way, even now. Even while her life was at stake, she didn't even act as though she grasped the significance of her testimony. One might think that even a pathological liar like Jessica might decide that court testimony in a death penalty trial might merit the reason to tell the truth for once, but you'd be wrong. She spent a long time on the stand denigrating Alan as a person and a father and telling obvious lies when she claimed she had been at all of the court dates and Alan had not. Alan's custody lawyer was in the courtroom and had been at all of those dates and had not seen Jessica. She continued to tell lies that could easily be, be contradicted by various witnesses and gave long rambling excuses to explain away pieces of evidence. Then Jessica contradicted her previous story by saying on the day of the murders, she and Jeff had taken the kids to her mom's from daycare and were waiting for Alan to pick them up there. Despite the fact that she had called Alan's cell and said that she was at her own house waiting for him. For someone trying to get away with murder, she probably should have rehearsed her lines a little bit more. 
Her alibi, while it did cover a long period of time, was also just not well thought out. They said they had gone to movies and then a strip club, but the club that they chose to say that they were at happened to have a bouncer that knew Jeff and definitely would have remembered seeing him that night. Cross-examination was when her story really began to fall apart. The prosecutor came at her fast and hard and quickly revealed many huge holes in her story. For one thing, though she had a cell phone, she said she had stepped out of a movie to call her mom, but the phone she alleged to have used was two miles away from the theater. And there was a payphone right at the theater. And she had her cell phone with her. So why go two miles away? It was really obvious that Jessica and Jeff hadn't really paid attention to the details of their weak alibi. When questioned about a dump run they had done Saturday morning, she explained they were doing renovation and getting rid of old stuff, but strangely had chosen to go to the dump that was located a half hour from their house, even though there was a much closer option. The trial would end up only lasting a few days, and on February 15th, the jurors went into deliberations. They say it's never a good sign for the defendant if the jury comes back quickly, and this would be a bad omen for Jessica when the jury had reached a verdict after less than three hours. It was a unanimous guilty verdict, a great relief for the Bates family, but they still had the penalty portion of the trial to go through, which would also include more testimony. Both Jessica and her mother tried to blame her behavior on her violent upbringing. Jessica was completely incapable of taking any responsibility for her own actions, and it was obviously a learned behavior from her mother. Jessica would also admit on the stand what had been hinted at previously was that she knew her oldest child was not Alan's biological child. She claimed that, of course, Alan and his family already knew that, but they did not. They were stunned. Everything that had led to Alan's brutal murder had been based on a complete fabrication and a good guy trying to do the right thing. During this time, Jeff was waiting on his own trial, but after hearing about the clusterfuck of Jessica's trial, he decided he didn't really want to risk going to death row. He cut a deal to get the death penalty off the table and said that he would tell the whole story of what happened that night. During his interview revealing all of the facts of the murders, Jeff actually seemed to be enjoying himself. He would laugh and make jokes as he was explaining how they had killed these two people and gotten rid of their bodies. He blamed the whole planning of the murders on Jessica. He was just the wet work guy who would step in and pull the trigger. At times it seemed like he was trying to act remorseful, but it just came across as disingenuine and forced. For a cop about to become a lifetime prisoner, he seemed to be completely disconnected from reality. Perhaps it was a self-protection mechanism, but it's also possible he's just unemotional and unable to react. Because of his deal, Jeff had ended up with two consecutive life sentences. He will be eligible for parole around 2028 when he will be in his late 50s.
Jessica received life without possibility of parole. Even while being escorted off to prison, she acted like this was just a short-term misunderstanding and that soon she'd be out of prison. She could just not grasp the concept that she was actually getting punished this time. Even though Jeff and Jessica's sentences had been decided, the case still wasn't quite over. Soon, charges would be filed against two co-conspirators who hadn't even been mentioned in the trial until this point. The first person to get charged was a friend of the McCords named Michael. He was charged with lying to the grand jury in relation to a storage facility the McCords owned. Allegedly, they had stored evidence in the facility, and Michael knew of it. There were others that would end up testifying that he definitely knew about it, but he would end up only getting sentenced to one year of a work release program, and the storage facility was never found. The last person to be charged was a little bit less of a surprise. It was Jessica's mother, Diane. When the police had initially gone to Diane's house to question Jessica, she had casually added in to the night's events that she and Jeff had later stopped by Diane's house around 12.30 to check on the kids. Diane had quickly added this into her story, but it had never been a part of Jeff's story, and at this point, he had absolutely no reason to lie about that small matter, especially after he had his plea deal. Diane had again told this lie during the grand jury and later during her trial testimony. It was such a small lie, but with big impact. That small lie could have changed the whole trajectory of the case if it had been remotely believable. For her perjury conviction, Diane received one year of work release and seven years of probation. The phenomena of couples murdering together is a very strange one. Jessica and Jeff McCord really seem to break the mold in this rare category. One commonality among the majority of serial killer couples is that they usually get together young and cling to each other, with one being the much more dominant personality, usually the male. In the McCord's case, they met when they were almost 30, and both had prior long-term relationships. It also seems obvious that Jessica is definitely the dominant one. However, Jeff didn't just meekly go along with her plan. It was more like she got him just as excited about it after talking about it so much. From my completely unprofessional armchair psychologist opinion, both of the McCords seem to have at least one personality disorder. However, Jessica's is a lot more easily discernible just because she's so vocal. Jessica seems to have a combination of antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic, as well as borderline. This was more than likely a result of her childhood spent with an angry, drunk father and through genetics from inheriting her father's extreme anger problems. The instability and fear in her childhood may have been what caused her to grasp onto men to save her and then have their child to make sure that they would stay. The big mystery of these two is how did Jeff end up a killer? He didn't have any of the background that might suggest that he would one day end up in prison for murder. The only real family issue that could have affected him at a young age is that his father was not in the picture. However, he was extremely close with his mother 
and he never got into trouble with as a child. And as a child, he had dreams from a very young age of being a police officer. And he had dreams he wanted to help people. And at one point, he worked with at-risk youths as a mentor, and he really, really enjoyed it. It seemed at one point he was an empathetic and kind person, but according to people that know him, his personality changed after he met Jessica. Apparently, Jeff had been much too shy to ever have a real girlfriend until his 20s. And that's maybe why he was so easily dominated by Jessica. Once Jessica came into his life, it's almost like she took on the mother role. First, she started exerting control by affecting the connection between Jeff and his mom. She wanted to have the complete control over Jeff. She didn't want his mom around to contradict anything that she would say or do to him. Jessica knew that Jeff had some sort of inheritance coming to him, and not long after they got together, she had goaded Jeff into harassing his mother until she finally gave them the money. This would become a major point of contention between Jeff and his mother. It's just very odd to think that a man can go from being a stand-up guy to a double murderer simply due to the wiles of a woman. So there must have been a propensity for it from a young age that was possibly brought out by Jessica. By the time he was sent off to prison, he had still shown no real empathy or remorse for the murders, except he was sad that he'd gotten caught. He simply seemed to view the baits as a problem to be disposed of. I'm really interested in hearing what your thoughts are on this guy because I really can't figure him out. I also am interested in knowing who you guys think is more evil, Celeste Beard or Jessica McCord. I thought about this a little while and I think if I had to choose which one I had to hang out with for a while, I'd probably pick Celeste. She seemed like she could be fun at times, while Jessica seemed to be consistently horrible, basically starting at the birth of her first baby. Thank you for listening to this Patreon episode. If you're listening, it's because you're fantastic, and I love you guys. I'm going to keep trying to crank these out on the regular, so have a good night, and hopefully you will hear from me very soon.